Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium. Episode 139, All in a Day's Work. Last time, we saw the Focus administration alienate the support of large sections of society. Their prioritization of the military threatened the civilian structures of Constantinople. Today, their time in power comes to an end. Just to get you realigned with the time frame, the triumphant conquest of Cilicia took place in 965. Nicephorus then campaigned again in 966, when he set up a brief siege of Antioch. He then spent all of 967 at home, building a wall around the palace and having stones thrown at him. He remained in the capital until the summer of 968, which is where we left off last week. He will then head back to the east to give Syria one last good kicking, then spend 969 at home before being murdered just before Christmas. Yes, murdered. We won't get to that until next week. Today, we need to rewind and catch up on some important decisions he made before the summer campaign of 968. Decisions which will leave his successor with a major crisis on his hands. One of the reasons that Nicephorus felt able to stay at home during 967 was that in February of that year, Seif Adola passed away. The emir had been suffering from a debilitating neurological condition for the past decade, and it finally finished him off at the age of 51. Despite all the hard times, Saif still maintained a strong reputation across Syria and northern Mesopotamia. Another leader would surely have been deposed after the shattering losses to the Romans. But with his death the realm finally began to splinter amongst local power brokers. Authority technically devolved to his son Sharif, often known as Sa'd Adola. However, he was shut out of many of the region's cities for the next few years. For example, one of Saif's chief ministers ran Aleppo with the support of its garrison. This political division meant that little effective opposition would be available to defend Antioch. 
which is just what Nicephorus wanted to hear. Before the Vasilevs can get back to campaigning, though, we need to cover the other foreign policy issues he wrestled with during his time at the capital. This was an eventful couple of years. Developments that concern us took place in Armenia, Italy, and the Balkans. In Armenia, the princes of Tehran, the lands just beyond Melitene, voluntarily ceded their kingdom to the Roman Empire. It's hard to remember the last time that happened. My mind goes all the way back to the king of Pergamum, i.e. western Anatolia, who willed his kingdom to the Romans in 133 BC. As you know, the myriad Armenian princes had been growing closer to the Romans ever since the middle of the 9th century. The men of the mountains knew that their survival depended on good relations with the preeminent powers surrounding them. This has generally taken the form of prominent Armenians being brought onto the imperial payroll, usually in exchange for their cooperation in the sieges of Melitene and Theodosiopolis, or for just minding their lands for Roman traders and soldiers passing through. Since Nicephorus went on the offensive, increasing numbers of Armenians have been recruited as both soldiers for the army and settlers for newly conquered territory. The old fortress or patch of land has been handed over during this time, but this donation was on a completely different scale. I've put up a map which should help you identify the Principality of Tehran, but it is on the regular map. It's the territory lying between Lake Van and the easternmost Roman outposts of Melitene and Arsamosata. This land has seen many marches and countermarches recently, particularly during the battles between Saif and John Simiskis. The ruler of Tehran, Ashot III, knew the Byzantines very well. He'd been to Constantinople and had been on the imperial payroll for a while. So when he died in 966, his sons made a calculated decision. Rather than divide the territory up between them, they decided to hand the whole thing over to the Romans. Their goal seems to have been to continue to run the place, but now be paid for the privilege as local army commanders. The salary of a strategos was guaranteed, whereas the rents on precarious mountain farms were not. They would, of course, keep their own estates anyway, and the big bonus was the chance to either be further promoted within the imperial system or to serve on campaigns into the former caliphate. The chance to grow rich and powerful seemed far greater within the Byzantine world. There were risks, of course. They were inviting Roman law and Roman clerics into their realm, and they might one day fall foul of the emperor and be replaced. But the prestige of Byzantium was flying as high as it ever had, and so the brothers threw in their lot with Romania. Though some of the land they inherited was rock and mud, the Roman Empire advanced about 125 miles to the east. 
This was all in a day's work for Nicephorus. Not only was he used to expanding the borders, but his desire to recruit Armenians for the conquest project was furthered by this donation. Roman arms were now face to face with the small collection of Arab towns which had grown up around Lake Van. In a skirmish during this time, Byzantine forces sacked one of the settlements, Manzikert. The leader of that attack was Bardas Phocas. No, not the 90-year-old. This was Leo Phocas's son, who had been appointed the Dukes of Chaldea. This attack showed the Saracens who was boss, but generally they were left in peace. These towns were not guarding strategic locations, and it was felt that they acted as a buffer between the Romans and the Emirate of Azerbaijan, which lay on the other side of the mountains. I'll talk more about the administration of these new themes when we get to 976. I'm planning on taking a short pause there to cover end-of-the-century topics, but I won't actually do a full tour until 1025. If you have any questions about the narrative, do send them in. Less good news came from Bulgaria, which, as you know, had been at peace with the empire for the past 40 years. An almost unprecedented period of détente. It was the Tsar Simeon who deserves most of the credit for the lasting peace. He had battered the Byzantines into accepting him and his country as something of an equal. And with Romanus Lecapinossi's wise decision to marry his granddaughter to Simeon's son Peter, the two empires had come to rest. The marriage between Maria and Peter had been sealed with an annual payment of Roman gold. The idea of tribute was always a sensitive one, and so this expense was officially labelled as upkeep for the lifestyle of the Empress Maria. She passed away, though, in 963, and fresh from his eastern conquests, Nicephorus decided to withhold further payment. To be clear, the Emperor had no interest in fighting a war with the Bulgarians, his eyes remained firmly fixed on Syria, but he clearly felt that his reputation was strong enough that he could demand a renegotiation of the peace terms without too much difficulty. Ah, when will they learn? In the summer of 967, Nicephorus toured the Thracian defensive network, perhaps to genuinely inspect them, but perhaps as a show of force. During this time, he sent a letter to Tsar Peter, pointing out that the Bulgarians, on their side of the treaty, were meant to protect Roman lands from northern attack. This was a reference to the Magyars, who, as you know, had on several occasions crossed Bulgaria and raided Thrace. It was probably these incursions which prompted the creation of the position of domestic of the West. We have very few sources for events in the Balkans during this period, so we have no way of knowing who was in the right. 
But Peter replied that he had asked for Roman assistance during these attacks and had been ignored. So he had had to come to his own arrangements with the Magyars, presumably meaning he would allow them to ride through his lands if they treated his people well. If true, we should have some sympathy for Peter. The Magyars had been building a fearsome reputation over the past half century. As you know, the Magyars fled to the Hungarian plain to get away from the ferocious Pechenegs. But the Magyars were no shrinking violets themselves. They brought their steppe skills and way of life with them, and spent the first half of the 10th century raiding far and wide across Western Europe. Horse archers were spotted as far apart as Spain, southern Italy, and the approaches to Denmark. The appearance of fierce pagan nomads caused considerable shock in the Frankish domains, and there was great relief when, in 955, the East Frankish king Otto I inflicted a decisive defeat on the Magyars at Lechfeld. Checked in the west, the Magyars had raided closer to home, and Peter was struggling to deal with them. But this refusal to bow down to Roman demands irritated Nicephorus. So he reached for the standard imperial playbook and invited a group from the steppes to attack Bulgaria on his behalf. A decision which seems overly harsh towards the otherwise peaceful Bulgarians and a policy which had backfired spectacularly when Leo VI used it half a century ago. On that occasion, the northern tribe had been the Magyars. Now it was the Rus. The Northmen had continued to grow and strengthen their realm, and around this time launched an amphibious operation which finally destroyed the Khazar capital of Attil. The Romans were anxious to harness this new power as their ally, and some sources suggest that the Byzantine province of Cherson in the Crimea was under threat from the rising Rus tide. So, to kill two birds with one stone, Nicephorus sent a boatload of gold to Cherson and instructed a nobleman called Kalokiros to bribe the Rus with it. He did, and the Rus prince Sviatoslav duly made preparations to launch an attack the following year. It may not surprise you, though, to learn that this operation also backfired on the Romans. The Rus were too successful in their mission and began making plans to conquer Bulgaria. The idea of the dangerous Rus navy operating out of the Danube was a horrific prospect for Constantinople. But Nicephorus would be dead before the full potential of this crisis could be realised, and so we will return to it in a future episode. Finally, we turn to Italy, and handily we've already introduced our antagonist, Otto I of East Francia. It was that eastern realm that Otto inherited in 936, and set about centralising power. The impressive victory over the Magyars in 955 
effectively ended large-scale raiding of Western Europe, which gave Otto great prestige as a Christian monarch. He followed this up by invading Italy in 961, deposing the king and crowning himself. Having somewhat mirrored the career of Charlemagne, Otto went ahead and had himself crowned Roman Emperor by the Pope in 962. I'll talk more about this in the future as well. As he was sweeping all before him, Otto demanded recognition from the Byzantines for his new title. In exchange, he offered to let them keep their southern Italian territories, which he clearly felt he could annex if he wished. The initial response from Constantinople was not warm, and so he decided to press matters. He made an alliance with the Lombard Duke of Capua and invaded Byzantine territory in the summer of 968. This was more brazen than any Frankish move in the past, and the man tasked with explaining this assault to Nicephorus was Liutbrand of Cremona. Naturally, the Byzantines were furious that Otto had attacked them and treated Liutbrand with scorn. Otto's terms were simple. He wanted both recognition of his title and an imperial bride for his son. These concessions, that had only recently been granted to the Bulgarians, would mollify him, and he would leave southern Italy alone. In terms of military narrative, there's almost nothing to report. Otto marched south and besieged the Byzantine city of Bari. But as a coastal settlement with good fortifications, it was very hard to take. The besieged resupplied by sea, and the emperor was forced to give up. He returned in 969 to besiege the city of Cassano, but failed again. By then, Nicephorus had sent a fleet with reinforcements, and they held off the invaders and made a tit-for-tat raid on Capua. There was a reason the Byzantines had been able to hold on to southern Italy. The mountainous region was tricky to navigate, and it was the Romans who controlled the sea. The more interesting part of the story for many historians is Liadprand's account of his time in Constantinople. This is the text where he mocks Nicephorus's appearance and generally runs the Byzantines down. A complete contrast to his previous experience two decades earlier. Liadprand's time in the capital captures a lot of the problems with relations between Byzantium and the West. The bishop struggles to understand why the Romans are so upset by Otto's decision to style himself as Roman Emperor. He also bickers with his hosts over matters of doctrine and dress. Perhaps more damagingly, Liadprand presents the Byzantines as duplicitous and untrustworthy, a reputation which would grow amongst Western writers over the next couple of centuries. If we believe him, then Liadprand was certainly 
treated poorly by his hosts. He was housed in a drafty building with little in the way of provisions and wasn't allowed to leave without an escort. Several times he was told that he could go home, only for the offer to be yanked away at the last minute. He was berated repeatedly by members of the Focus administration at official functions and was only too glad to leave when he did. However, from the perspective of the Romans, Liutprand was a representative from a state they were at war with. They were preparing a fleet in response during his stay, which he could have spied on. Naturally, then, they kept him in seclusion, and the various offers to let him leave may have been tests to see if he would attempt to communicate with agents somewhere else in the city. And moreover, the hostility of officials toward him was in keeping with the Byzantine desire to send a clear message to Otto that his invasion was unacceptable and that his grab for the title of Roman Emperor was unwelcome. And I should also point out that Liutprand's drafty accommodation was a disused palace and that the occasions when he was insulted were usually imperial banquets where he was being royally feasted and entertained alongside other ambassadors. Anyway, the petty war in southern Italy was another issue which Nicephorus's successor would have to deal with. It is a notable conflict, though, in part because of the brazenness of the Frankish attack. This was a harbinger of future western assaults on Byzantine territory, no longer was there much fear that Constantinople could strike this far from home. Some scholars argue that Otto's attack only came when it did because of the complete failure of Nicephorus's Sicilian expedition of 964. Ample demonstration of Byzantine weakness in the region. We now essentially rejoin the narrative from last episode. After spending a year and a half in the capital, losing favour with the people, Nicephorus gleefully set off on campaign in the summer of 968. By October, his army was assembled and he swept into Syria via Martyropolis in the north. He killed and enslaved all the way to Antioch, but seeing that the city was still securely held, he moved on. He pushed as far south as he'd ever done before and made for the city of Emesa. It's right at the bottom of our base map. Again, he was relic hunting and extorted the head of John the Baptist from them. Then he marched for the coast and burnt the suburbs of Tripolis, again after establishing that the city could not easily be taken. Heading north again, he sacked Arca in early November after a nine-day siege. Apparently the locals had all fled there with their possessions, and Nicephorus scooped up a bumper crop of treasure. He trotted up the coast road, capturing fortresses as he went. He besieged the city of Laodicea, and negotiated its surrender. It would be a useful naval base in the forthcoming assault on Antioch, and so Nicephorus treated the people kindly, 
the local notable who'd negotiated with him, was put on the payroll and given control of the city on the emperor's behalf. No Arab force had dared to face Phocas during this campaign. So he decided to leave some troops in Syria to begin tightening the noose around Antioch. He ordered his men to build a fortress in the Amanos mountain passes, essentially cutting the city off from direct land communication with the rest of Syria. A general named Michael Vortzis was left in charge of this operation. He was given 1,500 troops and instructed to ravage the surrounding farmlands, but not to attack the city. From the north, the commander of forces in Cilicia was to do the same. The man in charge there was a eunuch named Petros, a loyal retainer of the Phocas family. By destroying the city's agricultural base, the pressure would be ratcheted up on the Hamdanid governor of the city. There were still many in Antioch who wanted to make a deal with the Romans. This policy of weakening a city before taking it was, of course, the same one which had been used at Melitene, Theodosiopolis, and Tarsus. Doubtless, the Vasilefs planned to bring back the full army to finish the job soon. Once again, the emperor returned to the Bosphorus undefeated. In his wake trailed another precious Christian relic, a train of prisoners and wagons of loot. Just another summer for the White Death. Amongst the camp followers on this occasion, though, was the Monophysite Patriarch of Syria. Yohanan and his senior bishops were following the emperor to the capital. Nicephorus, like Heraclius and Justinian before him, felt that his military prestige might be enough to forge a church compromise. A synod was set up where these men would discuss their differences with the patriarch Polyuctus and other senior prelates. We can only assume that this was an unwelcome summit on both sides. It had been centuries since the nature of Christ had been challenged in the capital, and the Syrians were doubtless under a lot of pressure to concede ground, but they refused, and Phocas was reduced to threats, eventually sending them off into exile, breaking his promise to protect the rights of their church. Between this incident and the unfolding Bulgarian crisis, Nicephorus's bluntness was starting to cause unnecessary problems for Romania. This uncompromising attitude will play a part in his downfall a few months from now. Our last piece of business for today is the fall of Antioch. Ignoring the emperor's instructions, Michael Vortzis captured the city in October 969. The ambitious Vortzis had made contact with men inside the city and offered them inducement to switch sides. 
they helped him scale the walls at night and capture a tower. Michael sent urgent word to the eunuch Petros in Cilicia to come to his aid. Meanwhile, the Antiochenes discovered his presence and besieged him in his tower. His men fought back, and for three days, bloody street fighting took place. Various fires were started by Michael's allies to distract the population. Petros was initially reluctant to cooperate, but rather than see good troops go to waste, he arrived before the walls on the 28th of October with a large force. The frightened defenders of Antioch scattered, Vortzes opened the gates, and the city fell within the day. Petros hastened to put out the fires, while Vortzes raced back to Constantinople so that he could deliver news of his triumph direct to the palace. The emperor was not happy, officially because of the fires that had been started, but then and now the suspicion was that Nicephorus was equally grieved that a subordinate had captured a great prize and not the bringer of victory himself. Vortzes was dismissed from his post for his insolence. Nevertheless, Antioch, home of John Chrysostom, resting place of Simeon the Stylite, thorn in Julian's side, blemish on Justinian's record, the second city of the empire, was back in Roman hands after 330 years. The celebrations at the capital were only blighted by the passing of Bardas Phocas, the emperor's father, who had seen a lot of change during his lifetime. But the capture of Antioch was not to be another jewel in the crown of Nicephorus's extraordinary career, because the emperor was murdered just over a month later. That amazing story, the fallout from his death, and an assessment of his record, will all have to wait for next week. However, you won't have to wait that long for some more podcasting goodness. Your friend and mine, Zach Twamley, over at When Diplomacy Fails, is celebrating the podcast's fifth birthday with five weeks to run wild. He'll be releasing two episodes every day for five weeks, and this includes collaborations with a bunch of other history podcasters and non-history hosts too, including yours truly. Next Thursday, the 25th of May, you can listen to a conversation with me and Zach talking in-depth about Byzantine diplomacy and chatting about the future and podcasting and lots of other good stuff. Check out When Diplomacy Fails and see what Zach has to offer. Finally, for today, if you heard an advert before this episode, yes, I have moved to Acast in order to further support the show. I recorded a separate podcast about it just before this one in your feed. Check it out for more details, and thank you all so much for your support. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.